When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of our special series, A Seat at the Table, where we examine the life and legacy of a cabinet member, I'm joined by a very special guest, a dear friend. We have known each other for years and have collaborated on multiple projects together, Steve Guerra. Steve, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. It's an honor. I cannot wait for this. I've been looking forward to it for quite some time. Well, and... As usual, Steve does not know who we're going to be talking about, and I will share which cabinet member we're going to be discussing in just a minute. But I want to give Steve a chance because he is the host of not one, but two podcasts. So Steve, if you take a moment to uh, share your podcast work with folks and just tell us a little bit more about yourself and your, your work as a podcaster. I host the History of the Papacy podcast and Beyond the Big Screen podcast. In the History of the Papacy podcast, I take a look at the history of Christianity, religion, the popes of Rome, and culture in general through the lens of the papacy and the Western church. And it's a sort of a meandering journey, but um, you know, I break it up into series so that it makes it a little bit more digestible, this huge history. And then uh, a frequent guest is Jerry of my Beyond the Big Screen podcast, where I take a movie and or a topic and bring on a guest who's really interested in the topic, and we just have a conversation about it. And it'll oftentimes revolve around a movie and really trying to find the real background and history and story behind movies and film and literature uh, through people who are really interesting and interested in the topic they discuss. Absolutely. And it was such a pleasure to appear on Beyond the Big Screen. I actually just had my first Pope mention, I think it was a couple of episodes back in the narrative series. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know if I can get to the the history of the papacy, but <laughs> it's always a pleasure to talk with you on Beyond the Big Screen because there are so many films and especially thinking of presidential history, there's so many depictions of the presidents. And so it's it's always nice to be able to come and talk about that and talk about kind of the history behind some of these movies. Yeah, it's great. I, um, the episodes we've done have been really fun and they've been really great topics. Absolutely. And so it's it's my pleasure to be able to welcome you as a guest on Presidencies. And this series, it's been a great opportunity to bring folks from you know, who have different backgrounds and different perspectives together and look at all these cabinet members because, you know, within presidential history, I think there are some cabinet members that are often 
not as well understood and, and not really explored quite as much, but that made a major impact on the history of the presidency. And so with that, Steve, I wanted to go ahead and tell you who we are going to be talking about because I chose this person specifically for you. I can't wait. The person that we are going to be discussing is Secretary of War Henry Dearborn. Ooh, interesting. Does that name sound familiar? It sounds familiar, but I don't know if I could put a name to the face. (laughs) Well, and he is one that hasn't gotten quite as much attention, but he was pretty pivotal. And in particular, we're going to come across a subject that you and I have discussed offline for quite a while, but we'll get to that in just a bit. So let's go ahead and start with Dearborn's life. At the very beginning, you know, it's a natural place for us to start. Henry Dearborn was born on February 23rd, 1751, to Simon and Sarah Dearborn in Northampton in the province of New Hampshire. He was actually the fourth generation of the Dearborn family to live in New Hampshire. So the family was well established by that point. His great-grandfather, Godfrey Dearborn, came over from Exeter in England in 1639 and settled, ironically enough, in Exeter, New Hampshire, before moving to Hampton. And most of Henry's early life was spent in Epping, New Hampshire. He attended public schools there and was known for being a champion wrestler. Now, with Dearborn, and this is one of those things about that that period in history, childhood wasn't seen as something to really be remembered. It's, it was more of a stopgap to becoming an adult. And so we don't get many details about Dearborn's childhood or many folks at this time. So that's pretty much all that I was able to find on his early life to that point. But when it came time for him to consider a career, he actually opted to study medicine in Portsmouth under Dr. Hall Jackson. And so he studied under Dr. Jackson. And then as folks do, you know, once they feel that they're trained enough, they go ahead and establish their own practice. So he did that. He moved to Nottingham, New Hampshire, and set up shop on the town square in 1772. Now, he actually didn't move to Nottingham alone as he married Mary Bartlett in 1771. So not only is he establishing himself in terms of this new career, but he's also establishing a new relationship and a new family. These years, of course, for folks who study American history, we kind of know what's coming because the Dearborns would only have a couple of years in their new town, in their new hometown before war threatened to upend the lives of the Dearborns, as well as many up and down the Eastern seaboard. So like many young men at the time uh, with the coming of the war, Dearborn joined the Continental Army and was commissioned as a captain, first with the 1st New Hampshire Regiment, then with the 3rd New Hampshire Regiment. During his time with the 1st New Hampshire, Dearborn actually fought at the Battle of Bunker Hill in June 1775. His later recollection of this battle would become a source of controversy, but that's something that we'll talk about on down the line, you know, later in his life, but just know that, that that's coming, you know, he's... He's got some controversy with how he saw the battle go. So after Bunker Hill, Dearborn volunteered to serve under Colonel Benedict Arnold in his expedition to take Quebec. 
Dearborn would write of the expedition, quote, We were small indeed to think of entering a place like Quebec, but being now almost out of provisions, we were sure to die if we attempted to return back, and we could be in no worse situation if we proceeded on our route. And so this is, you know, very early on in the war and, you know, at this time, and of course, Benedict Arnold becomes rather infamous in American history, but at this time he is kind of one of those rising stars. And so here you have Dearborn under his command and marching to Quebec. Now, during this march, Dearborn became acquainted with a young man from New York named Aaron Burr another person who would become rather infamous in American history on down the line. Unfortunately for Dearborn, he fell ill while en route and had to be left behind to recover. Ultimately, he would rejoin the force, and he did take part in the attack on Quebec on December 31st, 1775. Now, at this point, the British were victorious in holding on to Quebec, and Dearborn was one of 431 Americans taken prisoner. Dearborn was released on parole in May, but he would not actually be given his full freedom until a prisoner exchange in March 1777. And so this was something that happened regularly at the time. Basically, folks would be let out on parole, and it was with the understanding that you can't re-enlist in the opposing force. You've got to sit it out until you get your full release. And so... At that point, you know, Dearborn just kind of had to cool his jets for a bit and, and wait until that full prisoner exchange got him his full freedom. And so once he secured that, Dearborn, of course, rejoined the Continental Army, and he took part in the unsuccessful defense of Fort Ticonderoga in early July. Now, after this battle, Dearborn was appointed as a major, and in September, he was transferred to the 1st New Hampshire Regiment. And this transfer meant that Dearborn took part in the Saratoga campaign in September and October of that year. Now, here you've got somebody who is really on the rise. And so Dearborn, in this campaign, distinguished himself by commanding a force of around 300 infantry in repulsing British General Simon Fraser's attack in the Battle of Bemis Heights on October 7th. General Horatio Gates Yet another person, rather infamous in American history with his conflicts and trying to challenge General Washington. But at this point, again, Gates was still pretty revered. And so General Gates noted Dearborn specifically for commendation in his report to General Washington on the action. And Washington commissioned Dearborn as a lieutenant colonel and pulled him into the main force under his command at Valley Forge. This move put Dearborn in place to take part in the Battle of Monmouth on June 28, 1778, which was the last major battle against the British in the Northern Theater. Now, the shift in the main British actions of the South, however, did not mean that Dearborn was done with battle. But, you know, it's just, it's so fascinating, you know, as I was doing this research and just seeing that Dearborn was present for so many key battles at this part of the war. I mean, just really amazing. Yeah, he, it's kind of shocking that he isn't more well-known, that, you know, attached to all these really famous people and all these famous conflicts throughout the war, and he's not a household name. It's I'm interested to see how things unfold a little more. 
Absolutely. And and that's the thing, you know, he, he does have such a a rich history and you see certain folks like this that are just they have all these connections but for some reason they just they didn't become as well known. And so, you know, as we go along we may be able to see kind of why that that was the case. But, you know, here you have again he's he's very much on the rise. He's making a name for himself. He's making a name for himself with some of the key leaders of the time. And so in the summer of 1779, Dearborn joined Major General John Sullivan for what has been dubbed the Sullivan Campaign or the Sullivan Massacre, if that tells you how this goes down. So at this point, attacks were carried out by the Haudenosaunee, who are known more popularly in Western culture as the Iroquois Confederacy. These attacks happened in the Wyoming and Cherry Valleys in Pennsylvania and New York, respectively, the year prior. So Sullivan put together this expedition to respond to this threat to Western settlers. Now, unfortunately for the Haudenosaunee, the American forces pulled no punches and conducted what has been described as a scorched earth campaign against the native peoples. More than 40 Haudenosaunee villages were decimated between July and October of 1779, and not only were the villages destroyed, but also the crop stores that the native peoples depended on for the winter were destroyed. And so because of this decimation, beyond just you know the, the individuals that were killed in these campaigns, over 5,000 refugees fled to Canada to look for protection from their allies, the British. While this expedition was successful in its mission, as this ended the threat posed by these nations, it is estimated that around 55% of the Haudenosaunee population in the area died from starvation and exposure in direct consequence to the assault. It also drove the Oneida and Tuscarora to ally with the British and is a contributing factor to the formation of the Confederacy of Native Peoples that would menace settlers and army forces in the Northwest Territory a few years later. So, you know, this campaign, yeah, it did carry out its mission. However, the means are definitely ethically abhorrent, and there were other consequences. This, this created more problems on down the line, you know, and, and this is one of those things with history, you know, Sometimes there are these indirect consequences that that folks don't realize. And so, you know, this is definitely a point that I think we'll have to discuss when we get to the end and we're discussing Dearborn's legacy because his role in this is definitely something that we need to talk about in terms of his character, in terms of, you know, I, I think that this would be considered a disgraceful act. But while all this was going on, At some point, Dearborn suffered a personal loss as his wife Mary passed away. Now, this is one of the things that I came to time and again with Dearborn because he isn't as well known. The only work that I was able to find that was completely focused on him was um, it was a dissertation. I think it was from the 70s and I wasn't able to get access to it. So there, there are just these gaps in his life story. And this is one of them. You know, we know that Mary passed away at some point, but I wasn't able to find any details on why, you know, what exactly she passed away from, 
what happened. But we do know that she passed away prior to 1780 because in that year, Dearborn married his second wife, Dorcas Osgood Marble. And so this is something that, that happens in those times, you know, you, you know, whether it was, you know, at that point, it could have been that she passed away from complications from childbirth. People, unfortunately, passed away pretty young in those days. And so. Did he have any children that they know of from the first marriage? Yeah. So it does seem that Henry and Mary had at least two children. Sophia in 1773 and Pamela Augusta in 1775. And so that's one of the reasons why I was wondering if childbirth may be one of those things that may have been a contributing factor, whether she, she actually died in the process or from complications after, because you know, there were definitely, even nowadays, there are health risks for folks to watch out for in childbirth, but particularly then with the state of medicine as it was and the the lack of understanding of the childbirth process and the effects on the mother, it's definitely quite possible. But, you know, we I don't really have any solid evidence on that. After the war, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but does he go into, as, as uh, he's Dearborn staying in politics at this point, politics slash military, or is he easing back into his uh, pre-war m- medical career? So we will actually get to that pretty quickly. He actually, well, and I'll, I'll give you a, a sneak preview. He actually leaves medicine after the war. So he, you know, he will have a little bit more of a, a military career, but then also he get he starts to get involved in politics. So, but yeah, it's it's you know one of these things, and especially you know during the revolution, there was so much upheaval going on, and the fact that he's got this personal upheaval. But he did remarry to Dorcas, so she actually came to the marriage with at least two children from her first marriage. Mary Marble, who was born in 1771, and Dorcas Osgood Marble. That's right. Her daughter had the same name as her. And so I I imagine that genealogists just love when that happens. (laughs) Would that be a junior? I don't know what you would call that. I know. And, and, you know, how do you, when you're, you're calling for somebody, do both of them answer? Did she have a nickname or whatever? But <laughs> you know, so the, the younger Dorcas, she was born in 1774. Now, as if that wasn't a large enough family. So he's got two children, she's got two children, and then they have their first child the year after they are wed. Their child was a daughter named Julia Cascaline Dearborn. She was born in 1781. And so, you know, we're getting to 1781. We're starting to get towards the close of the war. And Dearborn, after the expedition, the the massacre that he went on, he rejoined General Washington's staff towards the end of the war in 1781, and he served as the Deputy Quartermaster General. He also led the 1st New Hampshire Regiment at the rank of Colonel in the Battle of Yorktown in late September and early October of 1781. So yet again, you know, one of these key battles of the Revolutionary War, he was there for, he was commanding troops, and thus he was a witness to the surrender of British General Lord Cornwallis, or 
More accurately, Cornwallis' subordinate, Brigadier General Charles O'Hara, who was the one who actually surrendered on October 18th. Though, of course, it wasn't an absolute certainty at the time. You know, we know that the Battle of Yorktown was, in essence, the end of the Revolutionary War. It would take a couple of years for the Treaty of Paris to officially end the war. But, you know, at this point, the war is over. American independence is secured. But by the time the treaty was signed, Dearborn's military career with the Continental Army had already come to an end because Dearborn was discharged from service in June 1783. And so now he's starting this transition back to civilian life. And so Dearborn settles in the area of Monmouth and Gardiner, Massachusetts. And this is actually in what is now Maine. So at this point, you know, Maine is a part of Massachusetts. It's referred to as the Maine District. But he settled in this area in 1784. Now, Why I say that he settled in this area is because I found one source that said he settled in Gardenia. Another said that he settled in Monmouth. There's a lake between them. So somewhere between one or the other, that's where he was. (laughs) A houseboat in the lake. (laughs) He could have been in the middle of the lake. Who knows? (laughs) Times were different back then. (laughs) You you never know. (laughs) But he, so he's settling in the Maine district. And at this point, you know, Maine is pretty sparsely populated, but it is an area that is increasingly being looked at for settlement. And it would take until 1820 before Maine actually secured its own statehood. But up until that point, you know, it was a part of Massachusetts. And so we don't know exactly why they made the move to Maine. Um, it could have been that they need it a place to better accommodate their growing family. It could have been that they were looking for new opportunities, but they did settle there. And then they had a child named Henry Alexander Scammell Dearborn. And he was born on March 3rd, 1783. Now, I didn't find any other solid evidence on Henry having any other children after this. You know, it, and it's Interesting because I can't necessarily rule it out, but these were the only children that I was able to actually identify. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. During this time in Maine, Dearborn was a ship owner and a government contractor. I didn't find any details beyond that, but it does seem like he had that shift in his employment and what he was doing. So he's no longer in medicine. Likely due to his Revolutionary War experience, Dearborn was commissioned as a brigadier general in the Massachusetts militia in 1787 and was ultimately raised to the rank of major general two years later. So his military career isn't quite over. It's a a different role, but he is in the state militia at this point as, as a general. Now, 1789 would prove to be a pivotal year for Dearborn, as well as the nation, because a new national government under the Constitution came into effect, 
and George Washington, who he had served under during the Revolution, became the first president of the United States. Washington remembered this young and capable man who had previously been on his staff, and because of that, he named Dearborn as the first U.S. Marshal for the District of Maine. And so this is his start in kind of a public office, being able to really be seen as someone in the public service. And he obviously made a good name for himself because he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives from the Maine District for a term beginning in 1793. At this point, you know, we're at 1793. This is in this is at the start of Washington's second term. And as longtime listeners of the podcast know, at this point, the factionalism was starting to grow. You know, there was definitely, there was a growing divide between the Federalists who were more supporters of the Washington administration. And then you have these anti-administration folks who become the Democratic Republicans or the Jeffersonian Republicans. And though Dearborn had his connections to President Washington, he ultimately found himself on the anti-administration side of the aisle in the House and would be a part of this Democratic-Republican faction that developed in Washington's second term. Now, because of this, you know, Dearborn, in his tenure as a U.S. representative, spoke out against the treaty that Supreme Court Chief Justice John Jay had negotiated with Great Britain. And he also advocated for a reduction of the size of the U.S. military to what was proper for maintaining peace on the nation's frontiers. And so these were two really big issues from that side of the aisle at that point. The Jay Treaty was seen as giving too much to Britain, and the Democratic Republicans were more aligned with France and were supporters of the French Revolution. And the military, this idea of a large established military, was something that was really, it was unpopular in general, but especially amongst the Democratic Republicans because they saw this as potentially leading to a new aristocracy being established in the United States and that this military could be used to subvert the public will. And so they were really concerned about keeping the military small. I don't, I have a, probably a surface level knowledge of the, the politics of this time period. Wasn't it kind of odd for somebody in that area to have been a democratic Republican? Weren't they more in the central part of the country or central being the like Virginia and parts of New York, Pennsylvania, that that wasn't really a hotbed of democratic Republicanism or was Maine in particular one. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing. And new England really was, it was more, it leaned more federalist and you do have some folks like, you know, Dearborn is one. Elbridge Gary is another from Massachusetts. And you see some folks in scattered places. You see some in New Hampshire. You see some in Vermont, especially in more rural areas. And so with him being in the main district, it's not surprising that you know he found himself on the Democratic-Republican side and was able to get that support because that's where they tended to have kind of their, their power bases. They would draw from more rural, more country settings. And that was one thing that Jefferson and Madison 
actively tried to work towards was building up party support in New England. And they they had some limited success with that. And that's part of the reason why, and you know, we'll see more in a bit, but that was kind of an end for Dearborn because they were looking to any leaders from that area to give them advice. Okay, well, what what do we need to do on the ground? How do we build our support in these places? Because they wanted to be able to shut out the Federalists. And Massachusetts was one place that they had some success. You know, they would have times that it would it would tend more Democratic Republican, and then there would be times that there's this shift back to the Federalists. So yeah, it, it really was predominantly Federalist for most of the early Republic. I'm really interested to see where this goes because I can see that there's some elements to his career that definitely seem like he could break out with, you know, he's has the military aspect on it. You know, he can show that off. He's a Democrat Republican, so it makes him stand out a little bit in his area and he's already uh in the national government Uh, i'm interested to see where things go from here i'm on the edge of my seat and that's the thing like you know this is it's such an interesting time to study and especially you know you get somebody like dearborn and being able to do kind of that deep dive to somebody who isn't as well known and that's one of the things I love about the series is being able to do that and, and kind of explore. It gives you a different perspective on what's going on. So, yeah, and, and that's the thing, like, you know, Dearborn, he really made a name for himself at this point because, so he, first of all, he worked on military committees in the House. And so he established himself as kind of this expert on the military, you know, and, and he was really drawing on that experience from the Revolutionary War and the state militia. And he also is noted at this time of doing a study of frontier requirements. And so that was really, that was what the Democratic Republicans drew as their talking points for the proper role of the military. You know, it wasn't that we needed the military at the big established cities on the East Coast. We needed them out in the frontier to be able to defend settlers from native peoples and and attacks and you know potentially even european forces you know the british the french the spanish we really needed them to help secure the frontier and so that's dearborn did this study and it was part and parcel with this identified proper size of the military and so this became a resource for democratic republicans kind of have the same talking points as they campaigned. And so this is one of those planks of, and this is, you know, they didn't necessarily have an established platform like we think of parties nowadays, but, you know, it was a pseudo plank of the Democratic Republican position on, you know, how government should be changed and how government should be shifted. And Dearborn was kind of their go-to person for this. Dearborn was reelected to a second term in the House, but then he lost his reelection bid for a seat in the fifth Congress to Federalist candidate Isaac Parker. And so this is one of those times that, you know, and, and this was leading up to 1797. So John Adams was becoming president. It was kind of a one of those turns back to the Federalists 
in Massachusetts at that time. So Dearborn was taken out of office. Now, this is one of those areas that is kind of a blank spot right now in terms of what I was able to find for Dearborn. I really wasn't able to find much solid evidence on what Dearborn was up to between leaving the house in 1797 and Jefferson's inauguration in 1801. Really, the only detail that I found is that his daughter, Pamela Augusta, who was one of the children Henry had had with his first wife, Mary. So Pamela Augusta married a man named Alan Gilman at some point, and then she passed away in October 1799 at the age of either 23 or 24. Hmm. Now, what makes Pamela Augusta notable is that apparently a couple of years prior to her passing, there was a city um, named Harrington in the main district, and it was incorporated as Harrington. But shortly after, they decided to rename the city. Augusta. (laughs) That city is Augusta, now Maine, and it was named for Pamela Augusta. It was named in her honor and probably also in... Dearborn's honor, you know, to to try and honor him and the role that he's playing as a leader. Isn't is that the capital? That is the capital of Maine now. So, you know, here we've got this prominent city in Maine with this connection to Dearborn. Very interesting. But that is the only thing that I was able to find for that four years of the Adams presidency. <laughs> And that seems like probably a. am getting the, the gist that maybe that's a critical couple of years, too, to have a huge gap in his timeline. Yeah, and I would love to know more. I mean, you you got to imagine that he was active, whether it was in local politics or Massachusetts politics. And you've got to imagine that he was having correspondence with other Democratic Republicans, maybe even Jefferson, maybe even Madison. But we just don't know. I wasn't able to really find anything solid on that period. But the reason that, you know, it seems that he was probably up to something and probably still in correspondence with prominent Democratic Republicans in other parts of the nation is because when Thomas Jefferson ultimately became president, well, was en route to become president, you know, he was... We had the election of 1800, which was actually disputed and ended up him and Aaron Burr got the same number of electoral votes. And at that point, the electoral votes didn't specify that it was a vote for president or vice president. It was just kind of in this common pool. And so because of that, because they had the same number of votes, it went into the House of Representatives. It took a while to be able to work through that. I think it was 36 ballots. But finally, finally, February 17th, 1801, the House decided and voted that Thomas Jefferson would be the third president of the United States. And he decided, and he actually wrote the day after the House confirmed his his election as president, he wrote to Henry Dearborn, offering him the position of Secretary of War. And in this letter, and I wanted to, to share this quote from the letter, He wrote to Dearborn, quote, It now becomes necessary to provide an administration composed of persons whose qualifications and standing have possessed them of the public confidence and whose wisdom may ensure to our fellow citizens the advantages 
they sanguinely expect. On a review of the characters in the different states proper for the different departments, I've had no hesitation in considering you as the person to whom it would be most advantageous to the public to confide the Department of War. So that's a pretty strong statement by Thomas Jefferson, the incoming president. Interestingly enough, a former boss of mine gave me a quote almost like that. I wish. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that is a ringing endorsement, isn't it? That that is a rather ringing endorsement. (laughs) Maybe... Maybe your boss went and failed that. <laughs> Copy <Yeah>. and paste. <laughs> it got me my next job at Burger King after that. <laughs> you can you can confide the burgers to this person. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is a ringing endorsement, and so it, it's obvious that Dearborn was well known to Jefferson and and had established himself. So, but. Dearborn, of course, did accept the post, and he was duly confirmed by the Senate. And so Jefferson is inaugurated, and Henry Dearborn assumed office as the fifth Secretary of War on March 5th, 1801, and he and the new chief executive immediately went to work. So as noted by historian Theodore Crackle, quote, the president and Dearborn began to sketch out the shape of the new Republican military establishment and to examine the means by which this could be accomplished. Jefferson worked closely with Dearborn to develop the administration's policy concerning the Army and seldom sought or seriously entertained other counsel. So he is really not only working closely with Dearborn, but also trusting him and trusting him beyond other people. And we've seen in other past administrations that sometimes, even though somebody's in an office, the president will turn to other folks, Alexander Hamilton, to get, you know, well, what do you think about the War Department? How do you think things need to run? But it seems like Jefferson was confident enough in Dearborn that he was like, you are the guy, you are the person, I'm trusting you on this. Here's kind of what I'm seeing, but tell me what you're thinking. So they had this close relationship. And in this key part, because I mentioned that this was, this was one of those big topic issues for the Democratic Republicans was reforming the military establishment. And so this is somebody that he is trusting to one of these key talking points, these key areas of focus for the faction. Yeah, it seems like he really was the right man at the right time with everything lined up to do that job at that point. Exactly. I mean, he'd already prepared kind of this this plan for this. And so you see him starting to be able to put some of these ideas into practice. And so at this time, and understandably, you know, there have been 12 previous years of Federalist dominance in the executive branch. So with this, the Army, and particularly its officer corps, was dominated by Federalists. You know, of course, they were wanting to reward folks that had worked with them, and so they appointed them to these officer positions. And Jefferson and Dearborn knew this going in. And there was, of course, concern that, you know, can we really trust these Federalists in the Army? And 
it's interesting because the commanding general of the army, who longtime listeners of the podcast will know that it's our old friend, General James Wilkinson, yet oh, another scoundrel Wilkinson. in history. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, Wilkinson was well ensconced in Federalist circles. And so you would think this would probably be one of the first people that they would try and oust from office. Well, we'll get back to Wilkinson in a minute, but there is a reason why he ends up remaining as the commanding general of the U.S. Army, even under Jefferson. But, you know, with this, they had to start thinking, well, you know, what what do we do? How do we how do we help to reshape this force and start to get more loyal Democratic Republicans who, you know, and in particular, Jefferson, I can't speak as much to Dearborn, but Jefferson really saw, you know, if you're not with me, are you really an American? Are you really somebody that, you know, is passionate about the nation? He saw his views and, and his party's views as being, well, that's, that's what America should be. And so they, they really saw this as one of their, their first areas of focus. Let's get these Federalists out. Now, the easiest way to do that, to start, was cutting the size of the army. They wanted to do that anyway, and this would allow them to go ahead and start getting rid of folks. Now, Dearborn had drafted the military peace establishment bill even before he took office. And so, as is done with administrations, you know, at this time and in the future, so he drafted this bill, handed it off to somebody in Congress to put forward, sponsor, and actually get through. And so, this military peace establishment bill cut the size of the army by one third. And so, when Dearborn took office, the army was just over 5,400 folks. And this bill cut it to 3,300. And so that was an easy way to start getting rid of folks. But you didn't necessarily want to get rid of just anybody. You didn't want it to be random. And so Jefferson got Wilkinson to transfer to his presidential staff, Captain Meriwether Lewis, who was a trusted young protege originally from Virginia who was well ensconced in the army apparatus enough that once he got on Jefferson's staff, he was able to inform Jefferson and Dearborn who in the officer corps were Federalists or Democratic Republicans. And we actually have a primary document where you know it's listing the names of the officers and Lewis is making notes about them. You know, is this a Federalist? Is this somebody we can trust? Is this somebody we need to get rid of? Being able to have this inside intel, Jefferson and Dearborn were able to work over the course of the next year to purge the Army Officer Corps of many of the Federalists in its ranks. Now, I did mention that Wilkinson was not one of these people that was purged, even though he was the commanding general and was well known to be in these Federalist circles. Wilkinson was very much a political survivor. He was somebody who was very adept at changing sides and securing new loyalties. And so with this, you know, once he knew that Jefferson was coming in, it wasn't hard for him to say, oh, well, you know, these Federalists that I've been hanging out with, I'm not really one of them, you know, I'm, I'm with you, I'm, I'm on your side. And so he changed sides and it worked. 
within a short amount of time, Wilkinson had proved himself to be Jefferson's general. And the new president likewise would act time and again to shield Wilkinson from his treacherous and self-aggrandizing actions because he believed Wilkinson to be loyal to him and to his cause. Now, you know, don't want to go too far into this rabbit hole, but regular listeners of the podcast know Wilkinson was a paid agent for the Spanish government. He was a part of the Burr conspiracy. We'll we'll talk about that a, a bit more in a bit. But he was definitely one. He was a double crosser, double agent. He would say whatever he needed to in order to remain in office, to remain in power, to be able to be this political survivor. And so he pulled off this transition from being the Federalist general to Jefferson's general in a short amount of time. It's just the worst. I mean, he should be taught in every history class because he is just the worst person in American history who doesn't get any coverage at all. And his is just such a fascinating story. I mean, you just, you get to so many points. You're like, okay, Wilkinson's about to be exposed. Somebody is writing to the federal government about, you know, that he's a Spanish agent. And then something happens and no, he's still, he's still commanding general of the army. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Spanish agent 13 is the commanding general of the army still. Yeah, I mean, it's just, he is such a scoundrel. And it's it's always interesting when I get to a point in the narrative that we can get caught up on Wilkinson and his scheming. And it's like, what is he up to next? <laughs> because you know it's no good. <laughs> <That's>, exactly. <laughs> it is never going to be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Wilkinson is there, but they are able to purge all these Federalist officers from the army. Now, these cuts didn't mean that the president and his secretary of war were wanting to completely decimate the military. They didn't want to completely get rid of the army. And this is evidence from another one of their early actions. So in early April 1801, it was announced to insiders that Jefferson had decided to establish a military academy at West Point, New York. And this military academy had been years in the making. So we actually discussed in one of the early episodes of the special series when we focused on Henry Knox that this was something that Knox, even in the early days of the Revolutionary War, was advocating. And through his career in the Confederation government and then the constitutional government when he served in Washington's administration, he would continually come back to this point and advocate for a military academy to really be able to train officers and really be able to develop a more professional military. But because there is this opposition to having a larger, more established military, they could just never get it through Congress. And so President Washington, of course, he had supported this, you know, having been the commanding general during the Revolutionary War and then as president, he saw that there was, you know, this was something that really needed to happen, but even he couldn't make it happen. Within his administration, Secretary of State at that point, Thomas Jefferson, had objected to it because it was not specifically stated in the Constitution 
that the government had the authority to create a military academy. So at this point, Jefferson was opposed to it, and they were able to keep it from happening. There was, however, a core of artillerists and engineers established in 1794, and there was a provision made for this corps to be trained by older officers. So this is seen as kind of being one of those early steps towards the military academy because this new force was based at West Point, but it would take time for a training program to get up and going, and particularly because the officers objected to the idea, quote, that they had anything to learn about their profession. And they actually set a building on fire in protest in 1796. <laughs> this, this may be more of a point of why we need you to go through training. Yeah. Let, let's, let's start with setting buildings on fire is not, you know, at the, the base that you're stationed at is not a good thing to do. <laughs> Star students there. <laughs> <laughs> Those college shenanigans. <laughs> but another attempt was made to initiate a training program at West Point during the Adams administration. But this time, the sticking point was that it was difficult to find American teachers that were trained in military engineering. And President Adams objected to the idea of importing talent from abroad. He felt that you know, especially as this is supposed to be training and developing the U.S. military, you know, can we really trust that to somebody who's not a U.S. citizen? But we just didn't have that knowledge base in the U.S. at that time. And so this kind of languishes. And ultimately, Alexander Hamilton got involved and developed a proposal for four schools in various locations with the quote-unquote fundamental school of military education being at West Point. And so we keep coming back to West Point as the location of this military academy. Now, Hamilton passed this plan along to Secretary of War James McHenry, who then passed it along to President Adams in mid-January 1800. And as we learned in McHenry's episode, and as we learned in quite a few of the cabinet member episodes from the Adams presidency, if Hamilton would have gone directly to Adams with it, there was no way John Adams was touching that. But because it came from one of his cabinet members, he was more open to the idea. And he agreed to the plan, but he wasn't able to act on it fast enough to get it in place prior to losing his reelection bid that year. And so then it came down to President Jefferson, who by this point had apparently overcome his constitutional objections to the idea and authorized Dearborn to send orders to Lieutenant Colonel Louis de Toussaint, quote, to give all the assistance in your power in the instruction of such officers and cadets as may be at West Point. And so on September 21st, 1801, Toussaint held his first class in mathematics at West Point. And so this is seen as the official start of the West Point Military Academy. Meanwhile, as he was getting Toussaint in place, he also appointed Jonathan Williams as the first superintendent of the military academy, and this was a posting that Williams assumed on December 14, 1801. And so on March 16, 1802, Congress gave Jefferson the authorization, quote, 
to organize a Corps of Engineers based out of West Point. As Stephen Ambrose described in his book on the history of West Point, quote, the Corps of Engineers, like its head, had a double function to serve the engineering function and constitute a military academy. So this law, with all of its vagueness, did not meet the recommendations or hopes of Knox, Washington, Toussaint, Hamilton, or Jefferson. Still, it did recognize the need for a national academy controlled by civilians that would emphasize science and produce trained officers. The government had recognized, however feebly, that military service was a career and that the military art required training. It accepted responsibility for training its own servants and laid the foundation for the first organized professional body in the public service. It's it's interesting that it was a, a couple of things are interesting in that they up to that point they felt that the army was almost um just another political element like oh new administration we're going to get rid of all the postmasters and the tariff people or whatever and then we'll fill them in with our guys and it seems like you don't really want the military to operate that way but uh it sure seems like that was the way it was operating Mm -hmm. exactly it it was it was seen as and and you you know whenever you start to dive into jefferson and some of his ideas you understand why he saw this because it it he didn't necessarily see the military as being something special and definitely not as as we view the military in more of the modern era. He saw it as this is another function of the government, and thus we need to have trusted people in there. Now, with that, Jefferson also had a strong belief that education was key. You know, he, we see throughout his career this push for expanded education and public education. And so it's understandable why he starts to translate this to the military. Just as with other roles and functions in society, the military did require training. And so even though it is interesting, you know, we, we see this with the Louisiana Purchase, you know, he didn't believe that that was constitutional, but he ultimately agreed to it. And it was, it was a more out of a sense of pragmatism. And so I'm almost wondering if that was what led him to say, you know, no, it doesn't say in the constitution that we can do a military academy, but we've got a military, we need them to be trained. And so, I guess we can really do a military academy. And so he pushes for this. And it's interesting because it's it, it's one of those contradictions in Jefferson that, well, seemingly contradiction, you know, that this is the person who doesn't want a, a large established military who's also creating this officer school, this military training academy. But if the military is to be used to secure the frontier, which was yet another pet project of Jefferson's. It was one of his passions. He, he believed in exploring the West and establishing the West and establishing on the frontier. And so again, that pragmatism, well, we've got to have a military to be able to secure the frontier. And so we need a military that's trained. And so 
you see how all this starts to come together and coalesce into a very Jeffersonian vision that is similar to what had been proposed before, but he kind of takes it in this, this new lens, this new way. Yeah, so much with Jefferson and with, like you were saying, it seems to be a contradiction, but it's really not. It's Jeffersonian. It would, somehow it works. Exactly. And, you know, there are certain things and ultimately Jefferson and then especially Madison and Monroe, these, you know, the Jeffersonian presidents are attacked by members of their own party, you know, well, hold on. No, you said we needed a small military. Why are you founding this military academy? Oh, you said that we need to do things that are explicitly listed in the Constitution. And if it's not explicitly listed, then we can't do it. So why are you founding this military academy? Why are we doing this Louisiana Purchase? They would view this as contradictory. And, you know, isn't this the stuff that the Federalists did? But in Jefferson's mind, and once you start to understand kind of his his viewpoints and his perspectives, then you can see how, you know, this is a very Jeffersonian thing. He took these ideas that may have started with the Federalists, but he added his own spin to it to really make it a, a part of this Jeffersonian America view, this this ideal of America that he saw himself as the champion of and wanted to use his presidency to really establish. Yeah. So, you know, here, you know, one of the first things that they did establish West Point. Now, the work of the War Department was wide ranging, as we've discussed in episodes on Dearborn's predecessors. In Dearborn, the Jefferson administration had someone who, in terms of background and temperament, was a capable department head. And we've seen instances of this, especially um, James McHenry is one that you know was criticized for not being able to keep up with stuff. But Dearborn, you really get the sense he kept up with everything. And as described by Crackle, quote, Henry Dearborn, as Secretary of War, inserted himself immediately into every aspect of his department from strategy formation to the everyday life of the soldier. In the administration of his department, he was ubiquitous, negotiating contracts, making assignments, settling arguments, inspecting, recruiting, and encouraging the design and construction of new equipment. He was interested in everything, looked everywhere, and asked question upon question. And so you see this, and it is something in leadership and, and best practices for leaders that we talk about in the modern era. You know, whenever you're new to a position, new to a leadership position, what do you do? You start exploring, you start trying to learn the business and even stuff that you may not be directly responsible for, but that ultimately you're going to have an impact on. You want to understand kind of the whole picture of what the organization or the business does in order to be really be able to be successful in your role and in understanding what your role is. And so you see Dearborn doing this from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, that is a really um, different type of person who would come in. They know something, but 
they want to really learn their job. And a lot of times people come into positions like that. Well, hey, I was a general. I know this. And they don't really try and actually learn how these things work. Exactly. And and that's the thing, you know, Dearborn, given his background, I mean, he was a Revolutionary War veteran. He had served under Washington. He had served under these these generals. And so, you know, it could have been very easy for him to come in and say, well, I know everything about the military. I don't need to really study this. But no, he he went ahead and said, no, this is this is something different. I need to learn what's really going on and where we're at so that I can help to guide things to move forward, to, to go in this direction that he was working with Jefferson to craft for this Jeffersonian Republican military establishment. Now, one of his earliest structural reforms was to eliminate the position of quartermaster general. So the quartermaster, you know, that's typically the supplier and Dearborn had had experience as the, the deputy quartermaster general. So this was somewhere that he was familiar with. He was familiar with that role, but he went ahead and eliminated that position. Previously, all requisitions for supplies and equipment would go through that position's office, but now it would go through the main war department. And that was so that Dearborn could keep a better eye on things. He really wanted visibility to what is going on in these procurements and getting the supplies out. He realized that was an area that under the wrong person, you know, A, you could have things not work well, you know, not have that good flow, you know, the procurement to the supplying process. But then also, if you have somebody who's less than scrupulous, they could be doing some under the table deals and securing their own quid pro quos, so to speak. So Dearborn wanted that to run through his office so that he could be sure everything was on the up and up and go ahead and make sure that this process is done well. Now, the only problem with that, with the elimination of that post, Dearborn had to figure out how to actually get supplies out to army units in the field. So this has been something that the quartermaster general had managed, and now he had to figure out what does this look like. So to accomplish that, Dearborn designated three geographic departments for the nation. So he split the nation up into three areas. And each of these was assigned a civilian military agent who, with their assistant, would make sure that the army units in their department were adequately supplied. Now, with this new supply chain in place, Dearborn also turned his attention to the suppliers that the department used, as from a national security standpoint, it was more secure to have supplies that were actually coming from American manufacturers rather than foreign sources that could potentially be cut off in a time of war. And especially with the United States being positioned where it was, you know, most of the foreign suppliers were in Europe. But if you couldn't get across the Atlantic, if there was a blockade going on either on this side or the other side of the Atlantic, and we don't have supplies, that's a serious issue. And so Dearborn and with Jefferson's approval, 
you know, uses this as a way to start really encouraging American manufacturing, you know, seeing what we already had and starting to encourage new manufacturers to come into play and make these supplies for the U.S. military. Dearborn's efforts at reforming the supply system for the Army would be thwarted by the human element. As with anything else, you can design the best system, but the people that are in place can sometimes cause the system to break down. And in this case, the two key folks in the system, purveyor of the United States, Tench Cox, and superintendent of military stores, William Irving, did not get along and would end up in these petty squabbles that impeded their ability to get supplies out to the troops in the field. And so you would just have them bicker back and forth and and just pick fights with one another, and it ultimately throws off the system that Dearborn had put into place. Yeah, so I mean, that's kind of not his fault. I think he's on the right path with this, but like you said, the human element and maybe how he managed human resources, maybe he could be faulted with, but coming up with the system that seemed to make sense, or at least something worth trying, you got to give him a little credit for that. Exactly. And and this was something that, that Crackle noted in, in his work. He wrote, quote, Dearborn tolerated both men and their antics well beyond the point where the interests of the nation were best served. Shortages in the field became a way of life. And so it really does become, you know, this is probably a situation that he should have stepped in and either gotten rid of one or both of them, but unfortunately he didn't. And so even though he has this great system, he really wasn't able to see it through to what he aimed for. But this wasn't the only area that Dearborn worked towards reform. He also looked in his push for reform to the Articles of War. And the Articles of War serve as, quote, the legal framework of the military establishment. Now, when Dearborn came into office, the articles that were in place hadn't been revised since the Revolutionary War, and in fact, did not reflect that the Constitution had changed the structure of the federal government. So you still got references to the old Confederation government and the Continental Congress, and it's like, it's 1801. I think this probably needs some revision. And so... You know, Dearborn takes some time to work this out, but Crackle notes that, quote, though the revised articles prepared in early 1804 followed closely the original, the new code did reflect the larger role of the executive that was defined in the new constitution and did consolidate some new power into the hands of the president. Now, due to concerns about some of the revised language, including a prohibition of using, quote, traitorous or disrespectful words against the president. And so that key word, against the president, not the government, the president. There was some concern about that. You know, it's like, okay, well, does that mean that the army is now, you know, <laughs> the president's to do with as he wishes? So because of this concern, it would actually take two years before Congress passed the bill implementing the new Articles of War. However, by 1806, Jefferson and Dearborn got their way and the new Articles were put into place. Another area that Dearborn worked towards reform was in the recruiting practices of the Army. 
Now, I noted previously when we were talking about the the different factions, the Federalists versus the Democratic Republicans, that the Federalists were you know, tended to have more support in the urban areas versus the Democratic Republicans tended to have more support in more rural or countryside areas. And this is something that, of course, Dearborn and Jefferson would have known. Now, there wasn't really a push at the beginning for recruitment because, you know, in 1801 and 1802, Jefferson, Dearborn, and Lewis were still working at cutting the size. So they were cutting all these officer positions. They were getting it down to that 3,300 number. And so they really didn't have to worry much about recruitment. But in 1803, a large number of five-year tours of duty were coming up. So, you know, at this point there, and this relates back to in the Adams administration, we had the quasi-war, the army was expanded. And so you had all this new recruitment going on, but because we were finally getting to the end of that five years that they had signed up for, you're going to have all these people exiting the army at the same time. And so this becomes a problem even for the scaled down army. And so Dearborn starts to realize, you know, if we're going to, if we're really going to have the army protecting settlers on the frontier, then we need to start recruitment again. And so he puts in place plans to step up recruitment that year. But knowing in his mind that, you know, the Democratic Republicans can really be found more in the countryside, that's where he focused the recruitment efforts on. And it was less drawing from the port cities that were strongholds for Federalists. It was like, let's find Democratic Republicans to recruit into service where they're at. And so this practice would continue in subsequent years. And thus, as time went on, as the tours of duty were ended, as these Federalist officers and soldiers ended up leaving the service, they were replaced by more people aligned with the Jefferson administration. And so this really gets the army more in where Jefferson and Dearborn see it as it should be. These are the people that we can really trust. So in this, and we've really been focusing on the the role of the War Department in terms of the army, But another of the War Department's responsibilities was negotiating with Native peoples. And so there would be agents sent out into the field. They would report back to the War Department. This was the department that really those efforts were run out of. Now, Dearborn, like Jefferson, adopted a policy towards Native peoples to encourage them to, quote unquote, civilize and adopt the culture and practices of the settlers of. European descent that were at this point heading into these trans-Appalachian lands. So it was really trying to bring them into the fold and and say, oh, well, you know, we want to live and work peacefully together on our terms. You've got to adapt our culture. Now, this wasn't a new approach for a president or secretary of war to take, and this would be a similar approach taken by administrations for some time after this, but, you know, this is just, they are a part of this paternalistic and seeing native cultures as being lesser than the culture of white Americans. So 
as described by historian Bernard Sheehan, quote, they encouraged Indian delegations to change their tribal ways. They instructed government agents in the field to do their utmost to further philanthropic ends, and they rendered encouragement and assistance to independent missionary efforts. Beginning in 1802, Congress authorized some $15,000 annually for Indian affairs. Unfortunately, the elaborate system of Indian negotiations and present giving absorbed these funds. Now, Sheehan went on to write that, quote, benevolence, the Jeffersonians failed to realize, would not compensate for the poverty of policy. And so, at the time, and for many subsequent generations of white people, this approach that Jefferson and Dearborn took was seen as being generous and well-intentioned. But we know now that it was part of the problem that Native peoples were increasingly being faced with. You know, not only were you having these settlers come in and take their lands, you also had these newcomers, these, these people, and the government of these people saying your culture is lesser if you really want to stay here or if you really want to be a part of things, we're going to need you to change and be like us. You know, we're just going to dismiss everything that generations upon generations of your ancestors believed in and that is a part of your cultural identity and society, everything that you know. And so this it's one of those difficult points in American history. I think it's also important to discuss and, and to discuss that, you know, here we have Dearborn in this leadership role and actively encouraging this policy of assimilation and quote unquote, civilizing these lesser peoples. And then they dangled assimilation out there, people assimilated, and they still didn't get accepted. Yes. And that was also a big issue because it's hard to fathom, you know, here these folks are actually turning away from everything that they had been taught was right, everything that they had been encultured with for their lives okay, well, we'll try this if this is what we need to do. And then they do it and, oh, well, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. We, we still want your land. So you can, you can be like us, but just be like us further west. Yeah. I think, too, that they really ignored a natural thing that was going on on the frontier, that Native Americans were adopting a lot of things that uh, – you know, white culture was doing and the, the white culture was adopting Native American things and cultural aspects. And there could have been something natural to come out of that that would have been a longer term and more uh, stable situation. But then, you know, that they have to wear top hats or whatever you had, you know, did back then, you know, they were forcing the Native Americans to fit this mold that nobody really fit. And it was almost like they were setting them up to fail. Yeah. Like you said, so that they would just, oh, you, didn't, you know, go move further, further, further. And then, you know, we're two, two or one steps behind each way. Yeah, it's great that you've adopted Christianity, that you're starting to dress like us, that 
you're establishing these farms and schools and, oh, you've established a written language. That's wonderful. It's amazing. Sorry, we really just want your land because we can use it. And, you know, there's good land elsewhere. You know, have you have you heard of the Plains? Yeah, it just it, it's it's hard to fathom. But at the same time, you know, this is something that that I think is important to discuss. We we need to understand that these lands that we're on that you know as as white people, you know, the the lands that we are on were stolen. They they were taken from these individuals and the the story of native peoples in North America and what became the United States is just so abysmally sad and awful and and reprehensible and so we see this happening at this point and in particular because Jefferson was such a proponent of westward expansion and settlement Jefferson and because this came out of Dearborn's office, Dearborn was responsible for some of the things that happened at this point. And we see that. So even with this policy of benevolence, even with, you know, Dearborn having this supposedly benevolent approach, Dearborn was not above using bribes to get native leaders on the administration side in negotiations. And there were certainly plenty of negotiations happening with Native peoples on the frontier during Dearborn's tenure. Now, one of the more prominent examples was Indiana Territorial Governor William Henry Harrison. And during the Jefferson presidency, Harrison secured what is now southern Indiana and southern and central Illinois in a series of treaties between 1803 and 1809. And so you have this rapid expansion of the lands that are now available to white settlers coming from the North and the South. And even though Harrison was a bit more ethical than other negotiators, even he had in mind that his goal was securing land for settlement by folks of European descent. And he was not afraid of utilizing whatever advantage he could in order to have the negotiations go his way. And so he, along with other negotiators, knew that Dearborn and the Jefferson administration would ask few questions, if any, about their methods. Again, it's you have these agents who are, you know, technically they're just doing their job. They're they're doing what they're supposed to. But the methods that they used and the fact that the administration didn't really care to ask too many details about well, how, how did those negotiations go again? What did How did you manage to pull that off? Hey, you got the treaty, you signed it, they signed it. We don't really know, you know, we don't, we don't really care who signed it. You know, yeah, okay, sure, they can speak for all the people in those lands. It's done, we've got our piece of paper, let's move in. And so this was happening at this time. Now, Again, you know, we talked about Dearborn's policy of benevolence, but even with that, he did at times express support for sentiments that would come to have devastating consequences for Native peoples. On March 25th, 1808, 
Dearborn wrote to an agent in the field who had advocated for the removal of the Cherokee from their lands in the East that, quote, if you think it practicable to induce the Cherokees as a nation generally to consent to exchange of their present country for a suitable tract of country on the other side of the Mississippi, you will please to embrace every favorable occasion for sounding the chiefs on the subject and let the subject be generally talked about among the natives until you shall be satisfied of the prevailing opinion. So even at this point, and you know, it's more well-known and well-discussed with Andrew Jackson and what came to be known as the Trail of Tears, but even at this point, you have the Secretary of War advocating for Native peoples to be removed from their lands and taken west of the Mississippi River. They were just itching for that land so badly. It was... The whole country was so land hungry that, you know, in different ways and in different different groups, but they all just land was the key to all of it. Yes. And so this will be something that we'll need to discuss as we talk about Dearborn's legacy, because this is a part of his legacy. It's a part of our shared legacy as Americans and what became the nation as we know it today. So, you know, as we get towards the end, we'll, we can revisit this, but I definitely wanted to make a point of noting that these were his viewpoints on it. And he was part of this process. He was a leader in this process. So I mentioned that president Jefferson was really interested in the West. And so Dearborn in his tenure was also involved in efforts to explore the Western portions of the North American continent. And so, Steve, this is where I thought that you would be a great person to talk to about Dearborn because, of course, Dearborn was involved in the expedition of Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Now, Jefferson really took more of the lead in the planning for this expedition, but the apparatus of the War Department was needed for equipping and organizing the Corps of Discovery. And so Dearborn, of course, was involved in that. But the main point that I wanted to note about Dearborn's involvement with the Lewis and Clark expedition, as it came to be known, is in the dual leadership nature of the endeavor. So originally, Lewis, as Jefferson's protege, was assigned as a captain in charge of the expedition. Jefferson and Dearborn saw Lewis, you know, here's somebody with a military background. Here's somebody that we know and we can trust. He's this brilliant mind. He knows how to survive on the frontier. He's the person who really needs to lead this expedition. But Lewis, as he began his preparation work, started to think, well, you know, here's some areas that I'm not as well versed in. Here's some skills that may be useful that I just don't have. And so he starts thinking. And at one point in his career, he had been under the command of Captain William Clark. And even though their tenure together had only been about six months before Clark resigned his army commission. Clark had made such an impression on the younger Lewis that while Lewis was putting together this expedition, he decided to call on Clark to be his co-lead. And that was a thing like Jefferson had talked to him about, well, maybe you can have somebody as kind of your second in command, but Lewis 
felt strongly that Clark, no, they needed to be equals. They needed to be co-leads of this expedition. Both of them brought very useful, beneficial qualities to the table. And together, they were the ones who could lead this expedition to successfully complete its mission. Now, for the most part, in the organization process of the expedition, Lewis got everything he asked for from Jefferson and Dearborn. But for some reason, when Lewis requested that Clark be recommissioned as a captain to be of equal rank with him in the Corps of Discovery, prior to disembarking, Lewis got their official commissions from Dearborn and found that Clark had only been commissioned as a lieutenant. So he would be Lewis's second in command, not his co-lead. Dearborn wrote to Lewis that, quote, the peculiar situation, circumstances, and organization of the Corps of Engineers is such as would render the appointment of Mr. Clark a captain in that Corps improper. Now, from the primary sources available, it seems that the decision to recommission Clark at a lower rank than he had previously held was Dearborn's. So for some reason, Dearborn decided that, no, this just isn't the way to go. And to be fair to Dearborn, you know, it was unusual to think of having a co-lead because if something happens between Lewis and Clark, if they have a disagreement, who are the folks under them going to actually listen to? If they're both of equal rank, they have to choose one or the other, and that's not in the chain of command. You never want that situation where you can have these differing perspectives and viewpoints and commands coming down to the same body. And so you can understand why Dearborn was like, eh, this, this really doesn't feel right. Let's just go ahead and do this. And they knew they needed to go ahead and get the expedition underway. And at this point, they had already started traveling west. They were in the, the St. Louis area preparing to leave. And so they really didn't have time for a back and forth on this. And so Dearborn just acted and said, okay, we're commissioning him as a lieutenant. But it does seem like this decision was made by Dearborn, and Jefferson didn't question that decision by his Secretary of War, even though both likely knew that Lewis would not approve. Lewis had been adamant that, no, this needs to be a co-command. I remember this now from the um, the books and things that we were reading. I never put Dearborn's name to it, but that was a really big deal of the whole thing is how Lewis wanted uh, Clark to be his co-captain. And it, it is weird it, because it was, you know, kind of like a semi-scientific Star Trek type, you know, boldly explore. But it was a military command, too. And like you said, that could make some awkward situations if... Lewis says something, but Clark says something else. And it just so happened that they worked so well together. Those types of things never happened and that they both managed their whole spheres. But it could very easily, something like that could blow up really badly and sink this whole expedition that they had put a lot of money into. Exactly. And and that's the thing, you know, just with different people in place, it really could have been bad. With Lewis and Clark, it worked. It, they made sure that they didn't issue contradictory orders. They made sure that the folks in the expedition knew that they were on the same page. You weren't going to play one against the other. But with other people in place, 
that could have gone so wrong. And especially being, and again, like you can see Dearborn's point of view here, we're sending them out into this unexplored region, at least unexplored from the American point of view. You know, they had no clue what they were going to face and there was no support for them. Mm -hmm. There was no, you know, writing back to Washington to get assistance, to get a relief in place to, they would be out on their own and would have to survive on their own. And so this chain of command was important. You had to make sure that the people under you were going to do what you needed to do. It wasn't just a matter of, you know, trying to accomplish the mission. It was a matter of survival. It was a matter of survival. You had to count on these folks to do what you said as the lead. And so it really could have gone wrong. It didn't, thankfully. But you understand why Dearborn was like, let's let's just have one person, you know, y'all can work out how this how this works, but let's make sure that one person outranks the other just in case. And so to your point, Steve, you know, Stephen Ambrose in his book Undaunted Courage, you know, this is one of the points that he really he really talked about and explored. And so and I'm actually gonna quote Ambrose here. In talking about this, so Ambrose wrote, quote, In a shifty little bureaucratic maneuver, Dearborn managed to make a bad situation worse. He dated Clark's commission as of the day he signed it, March 26, 1804. That hurt Clark on the seniority list and denied his service from the day he enlisted, and even denied his service from mid-October 1803 to March 26, 1804. So not only did Dearborn send this commission that Clark was outranked by Lewis, but he also, Clark had been working on this expedition since October 1803. He had been working on it for months, but because it was, the commission was effective the day that Dearborn signed it in March, he wasn't eligible to be paid for that time. And in terms of seniority, that put him a few months further down. You know, anybody who had been commissioned in that period would outrank him in the seniority list. And so this was just a really bad situation for them to be faced in. And again, because of the timing, you know, they were they were set to go. They needed to go ahead and get underway because timing was everything they had to get to a certain point before the winter set in and so they they weren't able to just sit around and write back and try and argue they had to figure out what to do on the ground and so to lewis's credit and as evidence of what a strong partnership they had and would continue to develop moving forward lewis rather than taking sole command of the expedition as he was entitled to do shared dearborn's decision with clark and asserted that quote I think it will be best to let none of our party or any other persons know anything about the grade. You will observe that the grade has no effect upon your compensation, which by God shall be equal to my own. As Ambrose described, quote, for the next seven years, only Dearborn, Jefferson, a clerk or two in the War Department, and Meriwether Lewis and William Clark knew that as far as the Army was concerned, Captain Lewis was in command of the Corps of Discovery, with Lieutenant Clark as his second in command. 
For the men of the expedition, it was Captains Clark and Lewis, co-commanders. That was all that counted. And so, you know, this is this is an interesting point in the expedition, and especially the fact that the expedition has become synonymous with both of them. And at the very beginning, you see that it really didn't have to be, but Lewis made sure Clark was his equal. He believed it. He wanted the men to see it the same way. And he became the strong advocate for Clark, even in the face of the administration's disapproval. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And that I, again, it, I, th- I, that quote was excellent because Dearborn really did make something that could have been very easily papered over and he made it something that could have been a sticking point and a, a point of conflict for them when it was the exact opposite of what they were trying to do. You know, I guess you it, it's the military. Somebody's going to be a little bit higher than one or the other. I mean, that's just the way it is. You know, nobody is completely, perfectly the same rank. There's, you know, one minute before if they get their commission, whatever, but they could have... Dearborn could have facilitated their co-captaincy, but then he goes and basically torpedoed it. And it, you know, at that point, Clark could have said, well, forget this. I'm, I'm done. I'm out of here. It's to his credit that he didn't. And in part because Lewis did that work of, you know, I said we were co-leads, we are co-leads, we'll figure it out, I'll make sure that this is rectified, but, you know, let's just don't tell anybody. We know what's going on, but we also know what the situation is and what our relationship is. So very, very fascinating, and and it's one of those stories that, you know, that's one of the things that we've talked over the years about Lewis and Clark and the expedition. And there are so many points like that, that are just fascinating to explore and tell us a great deal about the time, tell us a great deal about history, just in these, these little points and where things could have gone wrong for the expedition. So. Yeah, it really speaks volumes about their relationship of how much they trusted each other because it could have any resentment would have cause such a huge amount of trouble if Clark didn't trust uh, Lewis entirely on that. And I mean, obviously, throughout the whole trip, they trusted each other with their lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I, I knew you would enjoy that that divergence to the Lewis and Clark expedition and, you know, that Dearborn did have this this role in it. So I wanted to make sure to to share that. And, and likewise, you know, hopefully the audience, hopefully that's something that they really enjoy as well. So, you know, you have this point, And again, this is kind of one of those common things about Dearborn, you know, that he touches on so many of these key points and key figures in American history. And so yet again, we have this, this pivotal moment in American history that Dearborn is involved with. And so another one that came up, you know, a a little bit on down the line, because Dearborn was also involved in the administration's response to Aaron Burr's conspiracy in 1806. Now, given the nature of the federal infrastructure, 
many of the officials on the ground in the West report it up through the War Department. So again, this idea that you know the War Department was really involved with what was happening on the frontier. And so Dearborn was a key focal point in relaying information to and from the, you know, in between the federal capital and the frontier. And so Dearborn would, of course, be in the midst of what was happening with Aaron Burr. And this really starts with these rumors starting to come in about, you know, the former vice president is going around the West and he's starting to say these things. He's starting to talk with these folks. It would kind of first start trickling in, but then more and more reports came in and they start just getting this flood of reports. Burr is up to something in the West. Now, one of the things with this is that they weren't really clear what he was up to. You know, there are some reports that, you know, he's, he's trying to stir up, stir up secession in here. You know, he's trying to incite rebellion. Other reports, oh, well, he's trying to put together a filibustering expedition to take Spanish territory. There are all these different ideas of what he was up to, but there was a pretty clear that something was happening. Burr was up to something that was probably no good. Now, the problem for Dearborn and the administration was that there were also reports coming in that the commanding general of the U.S. Army, General James Wilkinson, was close to Burr and mixed up in the affair. And so at this point, the commanding general of the Army, and you know, we think of the, the military establishment, you know, now we've got the Pentagon, and that's where the Joint Chiefs are, the, the primary military commanders are at or near the nation's capital. But Wilkinson was actually out in the West. And we'll talk a bit more about something else that he was up to at that point you know, in a bit. But he was out in the West. And so while you've got Burr out there, you've also got the commanding general. And so Dearborn has to figure out, okay, well, what's going on? And so he wrote to Wilkinson, warning him of what he was hearing and recommending that Wilkinson keep his distance from Burr. Now, we know from primary records and and things that we've learned since that have come up in the historical record that Wilkinson was indeed mixed up with the Burr conspiracy and he was part of that planning. But once he started receiving warnings from Dearborn and others in the East, he changed sides yet again, surprise, surprise with James Wilkinson. And he actually helped to bring down the conspiracy rather than seeing it through. And so yeah. <laughs> Wilkinson. <laughs> Here we go again, Wilkinson. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, ultimately, and and can't go into too much detail about this, but Burr would ultimately be brought into custody and it would be, you know, military officials that would bring him to Richmond to trial. And so Dearborn was, of course, part of that planning as well. Now, one of the things that was happening at this point, you know, even after the Louisiana Purchase, there was still this large Spanish presence in the Floridas and in Tejas, in what became Texas. And with the Louisiana Purchase, one of the problems of it, you know, while on paper it transferred to the U.S. a large chunk of territory, 
It's also rather vague in terms of where these borders lay for this territory. And in particular, that definition of what was the Louisiana colony and Tejas. And so in the lead up to 1806, in order to establish a presence in the area, because of course the Spanish said, oh, well, we've got this territory. And the Americans were like, no, 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 you know, the border's really further west. There is this disputed territory there. And so to establish a presence in the area, both sides increased their military presence in the area. And by February 1806, the Spanish governor of Tejas, quote, ordered Spanish forces to attack all American soldiers who crossed the Arroyo Hondo. And so the Americans pushed the issue by sending an expedition up the Red River a few months later. Now, thankfully, despite these orders, Spanish forces that stopped the Freeman and Custis expedition of 1806, as they would come to be known, while they were clearly in Spanish territory, the Spanish forces didn't attack them, but rather allowed them to return back to American territory. They stopped them. They said, you're not going any further. Turn around, go back now, and we'll let it rest there. And so they were able to get back to American territory without a problem. And, and again, this is one of those situations that really could have gone badly. It could have been a war, but it wasn't. But this powder keg was just ready to explode. And so Dearborn, as news came into Washington of the situation on the frontier, wrote to Wilkinson, directing him to proceed to the Orleans Territory, quote, and take upon yourself command of the troops in that quarter, together with such militia or volunteers as you may need for the defense of the country. Now, Wilkinson, and again, don't have time to go into the details of this, but Wilkinson would just kind of sit on those orders for a bit, would just kind of hang out for a few months. <laughs> You know, it's Wilkinson. He does what he wants. See how things shake out to see where exactly. he can get on top. <laughs> well, and and it is interesting because there is a tie-in to the Burr conspiracy because that was part of it. You know, do we go ahead and, you know, maybe provoke the Spanish to attack? And then, oh, well, we've got to put this force together. We've got to take the Spanish territory. And oh, by the way, now James Wilkinson has this large military force under his command. Who knows what we could do with that? We could take New Orleans. We could march to D.C. Who knows? Yeah. And so there there was potentially this ulterior motive for Wilkinson Delane, but he finally did go to Natchitoches and engage in diplomacy with his Spanish equivalents to arrive in an agreement that would hold for decades with a geographic region serving as kind of this neutral zone between the Spanish and American-held territory. And so Dearborn, you know, even though he was afar, you know, he was still in D.C., he was still playing a role in directing efforts on the frontier. Now, one of the, the larger lifts for Dearborn in his later career was came about because of the Chesapeake Leopard Affair of 1807. And so, again, not wanting to go into all the details, this is basically an instance where the British boarded an American vessel, the USS Chesapeake, and impressed some folks on the American ship into the British service. And so impressment was increasingly becoming a point of tension between the British and the Americans because the British had this idea that, you know, 
well, you were British before and you sound like us, you know, you speak English. Let's just go ahead and impress you in the service. And this relates to this was the time of the Napoleonic Wars and they needed more folks to serve. And so this was an easy way for them to get new folks in the British service. But of course, the Americans didn't like that. And so with this incident and this increasing tension, public sentiment was, of course, turning against the British and the calls for war were increasing. But Jefferson and his administration had another idea. They actually wanted a peaceful resolution to the conflict. And they were hoping that they could find a resolution that would bring about the end of the impressment of American sailors and also get some compensation for the assault on the Chesapeake. The British government, however, was proving rather intransigent. They, they were like, you know, you're America. We're the British. What are you talking about here? <laughs> we're we're, we're the, the big guys around here. You're just these little pipsqueaks. It, it, no, we're not doing this. And at this time, the French were also causing problems for American shipping because Emperor Napoleon was putting in place his continental system, which aimed to cut off all trade with Britain, its allies, and neutral countries like the U.S. in order to put economic pressure on Britain to surrender to the French. And so you've got the two main trading partners and main you know, European powers that the U.S. is increasingly having issues with. And so Jefferson, he took this idea of, you know, applying economic pressure. That sounds rather good. That sounds like a good idea. And so he pushed for an embargo act, which would stop all U.S. trade with every other nation. And so Jefferson and his secretary of state, James Madison, thought that this would help to bring Britain and France to the negotiating table to work out a way to restore trade. You know, they'd They'd be missing the trade that was happening with the U.S. And they'd ultimately say, you know what, we've got some diplomatic issues. We can work something out. But in order for this to be effective, the administration had to actually make sure that American merchants were no longer carrying out international trade. And this was something that American merchants had no desire to do because it put them out of a job. (laughs) They weren't going to (laughs) be making money. They didn't want to do this. And so while the burden of enforcing the embargo on the coast fell more to the Treasury and Navy departments, proponents of the embargo quickly realized, you know, we're really focused on, you know, the boats and marine shipping, but you can get to Canada by land. You can actually go by land and be in a foreign nation. And so there were merchants that were starting to use these routes to get goods out of the U.S. To stop that trade, there would need to be an increase in the size of the army and forces would need to be put into place on the U.S.-Canadian border. And so Dearborn was, of course, very involved in this. And and you see this rapid expansion of the army at this time. And this seems like a complete about-face from their previous policy of, you know, just need the army for the frontier. and We just need it, you know, to be the small, manageable size. But... This was going to have to happen in order to support the administration's embargo policy. Now, the Embargo Act would last for just over a year, and it was repealed just as Jefferson was leaving office. And so 
it would ultimately be up to the next administration to figure out what to do with the size of the army. And this new administration would, of course, be Jefferson's favorite successor, James Madison, who would take office in 1809. By all accounts, Madison and Dearborn had worked well together, but Dearborn decided at this point, he's like, I'm I'm ready to go ahead and, and leave the cabinet. I, I kind of want to do my own thing. And so because of that, he used this opportunity, the transition between the presidencies to make his exit. And so he resigned as Secretary of War on Inauguration Day, March 4th, 1809. But as part of Dearborn's retirement from the cabinet, the incoming president, aforementioned James Madison, appointed him as collector of the Port of Boston, which was one of the more lucrative posts in the federal bureaucracy at the time. And so this would help Dearborn. And at the time, being a cabinet member, often people would lose money. They wouldn't necessarily make money as a cabinet member. And so this gave Dearborn an opportunity to kind of recoup and get his personal finances back in order. And so Dearborn assumed this post in March 1809 and would hold it until January 1812 when he was called back into military service to serve as commanding general of the U.S. Army. That's right. He replaced Wilkinson. Wow. (laughs) But before we get to this second stint of Army service, We should note that Henry's wife, Dorcas, passed away in October 1810 at the age of 58, and she was buried in the Forest Hill Cemetery in Jamaica Plains, Massachusetts. Now, shortly before Dearborn was recommissioned into the Army, he suffered a fall and took some time to recover. You know, he was starting to get on up in age at this point, but with the prospect of war with Great Britain growing, he really had to focus in on this new role as commanding general. And so with this new commission, with Dearborn taking over from Wilkinson, Dearborn's focus was really on the Northeast, as he and other prominent Democratic Republicans feared that Federalists in the area would use the ever-growing calls of war with Great Britain as an excuse for the region to secede from the Union. Because the war was highly unpopular in the region, this was one of those times that Federalists were really in power in New England. However, Dearborn's successor as Secretary of War, William Eustace, urged that Dearborn focus on an invasion of Montreal. And so Dearborn kind of resists this for a bit. He really focuses on the coastal defense of New England. But finally, finally, Eustace gets through to him, you know, He's like, Dearborn, just do this. And so he proceeds to Albany, New York to take command of these efforts to invade Canada. Now, Dearborn at this point tried to push for a temporary ceasefire, but Madison, upon hearing the news, countermanded Dearborn's order and instead urged an active offensive push. And and this is one of those interesting things, the, the invasion of Canada because Dearborn put together this multi-pronged approach to invade Canada, it really required a lot on timing. You know, if you were going to have three different forces moving into three different geographic areas, you had to make sure that they all aligned their timetables and that things were happening at the same time. Because otherwise, if one was moving and the other two weren't, well, the British forces could just turn their attention towards the one that was moving. Then when the others start moving, okay, let's divert forces. 
ultimately, that's exactly what happened. You know, this idea of a large scale war across a large geography was still very new to the American military. And so it just didn't work. Now, Dearborn did play an active role in the Battle of York on April 27th, 1813. And York, which is known better as Toronto today, was the capital of Upper Canada. Dearborn's forces burned York, and this action would result in the burning of Washington, D.C., which, of course, we'll discuss later on in the narrative series, but just know that Dearborn played a role in that. Now, at some point in 1813, Henry Dearborn remarried again to another widow named Sarah Baldwin. Sarah had been the wife of the late former U.S. Minister to Spain, James Baldwin, who had passed away in 1811. Now, it doesn't seem that Sarah had any children by her first husband, and as she was either 51 or 52 when her and Henry married, they didn't have any children together either. Though Dearborn had been able to attain a limited success on the frontier and the efforts, the military efforts there, He was recalled on July 6th, 1813, and was reassigned to a position focused on administration, so more in the military administration. And Dearborn was finally honorably discharged on June 15th, 1815. Now, you know, we've already seen that Dearborn was kind of this able administrator of the War Department and of the military efforts. And so in March 1815, President Madison did try to bring Dearborn back into the cabinet in his old post of Secretary of War, but the Senate quickly rejected his nomination. Then, as a face-saving measure for Dearborn, it actually erased the vote from the Senate Journal and made it look like the nomination had been withdrawn. So they even falsified Senate records, but they made it clear this wasn't going to happen. And the reason we know that this happened is because Madison wrote to Dearborn to let him know. And uh, you know, as I was looking at this, I was like, okay, well, why, why did he tell him? Why didn't he just let him think, oh, well, this is it. You know, I, I went another way, but I imagine that Madison figured Dearborn would hear from folks in the Senate. And so he figured I needed to break the news to him. And he used this opportunity to, to assert in the letter to Dearborn telling him about this, that quote, I trust you will see in the course taken by me a proof of the high value I place on your public service and of the esteem I feel for your personal character. At this point, Dearborn isn't in the cabinet. He's honorably discharged. He does start to figure out, you know, he goes back into private life. And at this point, he was elected as a member of the American Antiquarian Society in 1816, which is currently the oldest American historical society. So he's still seen as being this prominent person and somebody worthy of these honors. Dearborn was not done with public service just yet. In fact, he threw his hat into the ring in the Massachusetts gubernatorial election of 1817, which was the first election following the death of a former cabinet member who we had discussed previously in another episode who ran multiple times to become governor of Massachusetts, Samuel Dexter. So like Dexter, Dearborn ran as the Democratic-Republican candidate in a state that still leaned rather heavily Federalist. And indeed, the Federalist candidate had won the last five gubernatorial elections, though Dexter had come close to pulling off an upset in the last election that he was the candidate. 
Now, I mentioned when talking about Dearborn's experiences in the Revolutionary War that his recounting of his role in the Battle of Bunker Hill would cause some controversy. So this is where that comes into play, because Dearborn felt that he needed something just a little extra in order to have a chance of winning the gubernatorial race. And so, as has been done and will be done in politics you know, in the future, he played up that war hero card. Now, the problem, and especially he focused on the Battle of Bunker Hill, which, of course, makes sense if you're running for office in Massachusetts. The problem came that in overemphasizing his role in it, he downplayed the role of the commanding general, Israel Putnam. And indeed, he criticized Putnam for not being proactive enough and for providing poor leadership in the battle. This caused an immediate backlash against Dearborn. They were like, this isn't what happened. You know, Israel Putnam is a hero. Why are you attacking him? And so with this backlash, Dearborn ultimately lost the election. In fact, he lost with, he only earned 45% of the vote and the votes that he got Dexter in each of the three previous elections had earned more votes than Dearborn earned in this election. So it was, you know, even worse than what the performance for the Democratic Republican candidate had been to that point. He did have one other opportunity for public service, though, in 1822, when he was nominated by Madison's successor, James Monroe, as U.S. Minister to Portugal. Dearborn would serve in this office from May 7, 1822 to June 30, 1824, when his request to be recalled was granted. Dearborn retired to his home in Roxbury, Massachusetts, and passed away there on June 6, 1829, at the age of 78. Dearborn was buried in the Forest Hill Cemetery in Jamaica Plains, Massachusetts, alongside his second wife, Dorcas. And so that is the life of Henry Dearborn. I know I knew his name sounded familiar from the Lewis and Clark and then our mutual friend James Early and I, I uh, co-hosted or uh, kind of emceed his upcoming series on the War of 1812. And uh, Dearborn was a pretty major character and he still didn't stick in my brain, maybe because those two incidences are so disconnected. I mean, that seems kind of like maybe a theme in his career is that it's a lot of disconnected pieces are all major events but there he doesn't have a real consistent theme that runs through it absolutely and and it is so interesting i mean you know we've gone from the service in the revolutionary war to you know he's serving in a diplomatic role in the monroe presidency i mean this is a long amount of time yeah. and, and there's so much that's happening and so much that he's he's kind of he has his hands on or is a part of, but, you know, and, and this is something that we can talk about, you know, as, as we get to our categories, but, you know, even though Dearborn hasn't been, isn't as well familiar to the public nowadays, he is still as part of his legacy, you know, his name is all across the geography of the United States. So during the expedition, Lewis and Clark named a river in what's now West Central Montana after Dearborn. 
There are Dearborn counties in Indiana, Michigan, and Missouri. On the site of what is now Chicago, Illinois, Fort Dearborn was constructed in 1803. Now, this original fort was destroyed during the War of 1812, but was reconstructed in 1816 and would be in service for over 20 years until it was decommissioned in 1837. The physical structure of this fort was destroyed piece by piece until the last vestiges of it were lost in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. However, Dearborn's name would live on when Dearborn Street was constructed, and this street is now a major thoroughfare in Chicago. There's also a Dearborn Street in Great Falls, South Carolina, which got its name from a planned U.S. military armory that had been, it was planned for the area in the early 1800s, but it was never actually built, but they still decided to name the street Dearborn Street. A coastal defense fort named Fort Dearborn was constructed during World War II to guard the approach to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And his family also provides another former legacy beyond, of course, the naming of Augusta, Maine after his daughter. His son, Henry A.S. Dearborn, became a U.S. congressman for one term, representing the Massachusetts 10th from 1831 to 1833. Henry also served as the first president of the Massachusetts Horticultural Society and was the author of numerous books. He was also considered as a vice presidential candidate by the Know-Nothing Party in the 1848 U.S. presidential election, but when the Know-Nothing candidate, who they, they had nominated Zachary Taylor as their candidate, was subsequently nominated by the Whig Party and Millard Fillmore was chosen as his Whig running mate, Henry's nomination for VP was rescinded by the Know Nothing Party. And (laughs) it's like all of these, you know, the the Dearborn connection just keeps on in presidential history. But yeah, it's wow. Yeah, that is the life and legacy of Henry Dearborn. And so, you know, you had mentioned this, this disconnected approach in his in his life and career. So I think that provides a good starting point for us to talk about, you know, our first category is the whole picture. And so this round looks at the overall career and character of the cabinet member. And for each of us, we can award up to 10 points total in this category. So Steve, what are your thoughts about his, his entire career? It's an amazing career so many high points, but I think the thing that keeps coming to my mind is that there was no super high point and it's nothing seemed to add on top of each other. He didn't go from one thing to the next to the next that led to some big momentous event. It just kind of a lot of really good things, but nothing spectacular. Agreed. It just, it, didn't seem like, you know, and we see folks in the series, cabinet members who, you know, it just seems like a natural progression. They start at like a local office and then go to state and then go to, uh, you know, more national and they end up in the cabinet, but you really don't get the sense it's more, you know, oh, well, this is happening. Oh, okay. I, I guess, I guess I can do this it feels very disjointed. Like there's just not a a rhyme or reason. It's more opportunistic. So what would that sort of thing? I'm a terrible, easy grader. So I might, I mean, I, 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 should I give my grade now? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. 
maybe a seven or an eight. If I had to lock in, I'd love to give a 7.5, but um, I might lend to, you know, maybe go more towards the eight out of the right out, just out of the gate. Yeah. So, and, and I think you're justified, you know, if you want to give him an eight, um, because I, I mean, ultimately, yeah, I mean, he, he did have a lot of success, you know, he, he, here you have this person who, you know, started in medicine. He goes on to this military career. He ends up in the U S house of representatives. He ends up as secretary of war. He ends up as a diplomat. I mean, even if it's disjointed, it's still, in some ways that kind of speaks to, well, he's proven himself capable in so many, so many areas and, and did attain this, this pretty good reputation over the course of his career. So, you know, even if it's a bit disjointed and, you know, at times just kind of opportunistic, he did have a good amount of success. So I think that, that we can rank him high in, in the statesmanship and in this, this whole picture category. Yeah. To be a pretty major general in the revolutionary war, and then to be the commander of all troops in another, really the next major war, that's not anything to sneeze at. So you're feeling an eight. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going full eight on that. I think I'm going to go with your original. I think I'm going to go with seven, 7.5. But I, I think that, I think that he does have to earn high marks here because it is, he really the only place that you see him failing, you know, of course his strategy in the war of 1812 didn't work out so well. It was ambitious. It was also something that it seems like he was kind of pushed to, well, you've got to do something. And so, you know, we need a, a this grand strategy. So I don't know how much we can blame him for that. The gubernatorial election, of course, didn't work out well. And after serving two terms in the House, he was voted out. But he still has most of his career is filled with success. And so I think that we do have to rank him pretty high here. So got you at an eight. I've got me at a 7.5. And that starts him with a 15.5 to begin with. So that's a strong start. So now let's focus in on his time in the cabinet and the go get around. Now, this round looks at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. And just like the previous round, we can award up to 10 points maximum each. I'm leaning to something kind of high on that one because he made a lot of impact on and affected a lot of things. And for the most part, they were pretty good. And I mean, I guess it's with a cabinet member you have to have your own certain point of view, but you also have to put forward what the, what your boss is saying. So I, I could give him a, an eight for that. And I agree. I think, I think an eight would be good for him just because, you know, first of all, the fact that he got so involved in trying to learn what was happening in the war department. And again, with, with somebody else, and and we do see instances of cabinet members who try to get too involved and then they end up, they're not able to handle everything, but it sounds like Dearborn was able to handle everything. 
you know, he, he did have the problem of the, the supply chain and having this personal issue impeding the work of that. And so, you know, I think it, we're justified in, in taking, you know, a point or so off for that. But by and large, he pulled off these major reforms and he was a part of so many key projects that Jefferson was highly invested in. And it seems like he was very much a part of the schema of what became the Jeffersonian vision and key parts of the Jefferson presidency. And so I really think that that he earns these high marks as a cabinet member. He was effective. He was an influential member of the cabinet. And it was his vision in a lot of ways, or what he helped create, what the vision was that would become Jefferson and the Democratic-Republican vision. And he did what he said he would do for the most part. You know, whether we agree with it or, you know, there was definitely some issues there, but saying what you're going to do and then doing it goes a long way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And speaking of those issues, that kind of brings us to our next category, which is the hot seat. And so this round discusses any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the cabinet member. And this doesn't have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet, but I do think that we have some some things to discuss with that. And unlike the previous two categories, this is where we're going to be taking away points and we can take away up to 10 points each. He definitely is going to lose some points from his uh, Sullivan campaign. But I think you could probably temper that because um, it wasn't his command. He was a high-level person there, and I'm sure he did a lot of things, and he would probably had a lot of say on how the tactics and the strategy would go. But that definitely is some ticks. For for me, it, it's kind of hard with this one because you all will you'll have the people. Well, the war is heck, but so you have people who will say that. Well, it's war and it's this and it's that, but also it's war. But could you have done it in a way that didn't destroy families and women and children and towns? I mean, there's towns. This the Sullivan campaign area is more or less where I was born and you read about towns like geneva new york it's a small town there was a castle there uh uh, i believe it was a seneca castle but there's nothing left there anymore there's so many of these places there's a place ganondagon not too far from rochester new york there's nothing there it was a city of like thousands and thousands of people i think that was about the most western uh part of the campaign and don't quote me on any of this but the, uh, all these places that were major metropolises by any definition and they're all gone now and so that definitely is some points off just for uh, having participated in that Absolutely. And, you know, and, and thank you. Uh, I'm glad that you're able to provide a more you know, personal account of this, of, of, you know, having grown up in the area and, and seeing this firsthand. And so, you know, absolutely. I think he gets points off for that. I think he gets points off for 
the policies that he pursued while he was Secretary of War. And that in particular, you know, yes, in the Sullivan campaign, he wasn't the head. He was he he did have some influence, but he wasn't the commander. But when he's Secretary of War, he really does have more power and authority to be able to guide things. And there is definitely a negative this is part of that painful and disgraceful legacy of the Indian policies pursued by so many presidents of this time. And, and again, just like, you know, you were saying, you know, with war is, there are some folks who I know would argue, well, you know, everybody was like this, or this was a common thing. and, it may have been a common thing. It's still wrong and it yeah. still hurt so many people. It decimated cultures. It decimated societies and, and families and towns. And we, we can't, we've got to say that this was disgraceful behavior and disgraceful policies. And they could have done something different and they didn't. And, you know, he even said, yeah, okay, well, let's, let's see if we can get the Cherokee to remove themselves from their land so that we can claim them and, you know, we can ship them off to the West, you know, let's, let's work towards that. And that's, that's disgraceful. That's unethical. It, it was just, it was awful, abysmal. Yeah. I would have to say for that, I mean, otherwise his personal life was pretty normal, nothing outrageous in that. And otherwise, in his career, like you said, his World War or World War Two War of eighteen twelve performance wasn't stellar. But I get him confused. There were so many names that it was hard to keep them all track, and there were so many failed attempts at attacking Canada and attacking different parts of Canada. But his name didn't stick out as one of the more disastrous ones. But I think because of his, and well, it's kind of scummy too, to throw Israel Putnam under the bus for just to, for no apparent reason. And I mean, he, he kind of got the points taken off from him for not winning the governorship of Massachusetts, but that's got to be worth a little bit. I have to say maybe five, six points because those are his Sullivan expedition plus his um, actions with the Indians relocations is definitely five, maybe more but I would throw on a point just for throwing a uh, hero under the bus too. So you're thinking more of six. a six. Yeah. And I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to go just a little higher. I'm going to go 6.5. And again, this is something that, you know, especially when you're dealing with, you know, we have this with the cabinet members that are, that were that enslaved individuals, you know, there's, there's no amount of points that can really speak to and, and do justice to the atrocities committed against native peoples in the field 
by the policies of administrations. You know, there's, there's nothing that we can do. There's no amount of points that would really do justice to that. It's just in trying to, you know, A, we do want to account for it. And B, we also want to be cognizant of, you know, that this is a wide ranging category. There were so many parts of his career and life that, you know, it does seem like he was an able administrator. It doesn't seem like he was, you know, you know, getting money on the side. He wasn't doing things unscrupulous like that. But these were awful policies. This was an awful campaign. And to your point, that that Israel Putnam thing that, you know, why didn't you just run as a war hero? Why do you have to throw somebody yeah. else under the bus to make yourself look better? You you probably earn that that defeat at the polls. But that's and and it seems like that was kind of it doesn't fit with his usual character. And so you really gotta wonder and and we don't really know what was going on with him at the time, but that is something that it also adds into this category. So I, I think I'm going to go with a 6.5. Just it's got to be over a five. It's got to be in that category just because the, the Sullivan campaign and the policies that he really pushed. And uh, I think to me, that seems, that seems like a, a good place to be. And you think about it, Maybe I'm maybe I'm overthinking it here, but you balance off those two: the Sullivan versus what he did as uh, Secretary of War. You really could write off the, or at least like temper that whole thing with the Sullivan campaign. That it wasn't his campaign. Who knows? Maybe he would have done it differently. Who knows? Maybe he was fully throated in it. But that was a war situation. It was a not a great it was a bad way to run a war so he definitely loses points with that but what he did as the war secretary was his policy as much as you know on you know ultimately the president is the person who has to take that the buck stops with the president but the president's getting a, a lot of the what they come up with from their top secretaries he's really in a way even more responsible for the relations between Native Americans and uh, the the government almost up until this day. He's a major, that's a major part of the, I almost want to take another po- half a point away. And, and if you want to, I can, we can still do that. Yeah, let's take, I, I think it's a minus 6.5, just because that does really, that's a very critical time. It's before the Trail of Tears, but Somebody looking at the Trail of Tears, you know, that wanting to do something like that, they have a precedent that's been laid out on a, you know, and handed to them. That's on, that's definitely on him. Well, and and especially, and Steve, I think you bring up a good point. You know, this wasn't a time of war. This was just people trying to live on their lands that, you know, some of them were had been forced off of other lands and were living there, but others had been there for generations. They're just trying to live. And yeah. here you've got 
this government that is catering to these land-hungry settlers and willing to do whatever it took to get that land that they wanted. And it, it didn't matter about the people who were already there. They just wanted the land and they were, they'll get it one way or another. And so, yeah, uh, I think, and with that, that brings us to, we're, we're removing 13 points, which with his other points, now we're at an 18.5. But I think that we really do, uh, that feels like, that feels like a good place to be in terms of the the hot seat round. And so with that, you know, as I said, he's at 18.5 now, but he's got a chance to pick up a few more points. So first of all, in terms of tenure of office, we do award points for that. And it's the entire time that a cabinet member served in a full-time capacity. And that counts towards points in this round. And so for Dearborn, it is pretty much like shy of a day it is eight years march 5th 1801 to march 4th 1809 so he earns eight more points and our cabinet members do have a chance to pick up some bonus points so they can earn a a bonus point if the cabinet member served in more than one full-time cabinet position he doesn't earn this one he was only secretary of war A bonus point can be awarded if the cabinet member served as a full-time cabinet member in more than one presidential administration. He was close, but since he resigned and left office when Jefferson did, he was only in the Jefferson administration. And finally, a cabinet member can earn a bonus point if they become president. Henry Dearborn may have had many opportunities in his life, but that was not one of them. So, we end up with a grand total for Henry Dearborn of 26.5. And that brings us to our last question. So Steve, after all I've shared about Henry Dearborn's life and career and what we've discussed, do you think that this cabinet member is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars? I mean, there's been a lot of all-stars. I think that because he had such a varied career, I think he he gets a seat. I mean, just barely. But I think he does. He probably should be remembered, I think, and be put up there. Because that's a really big, that's a lot of stuff that he had his fingers on that is still impactful to this day. It's not like he was in a one a one issue guy of something from the 18 early 1800s and that's that or a you know a cabinet member who was you know really impactful on a program that it ran its course and now it's it was a really big deal when they were uh in in there but now it's like oh you know it hasn't been a th- things since our you know our grandparents i think the things that he's done really have us have an impact on us today. And I agree with you there, Steve. I really think that, yeah, and it is, he is one of those figures that I think needs more study because, you know, we've seen over the course of this, that he was very key to what was going on in the Jefferson administration and some of the administration's, you know, key policies and, and key 
efforts. And so I, I think that and the fact that he worked so closely with the president and kept Jefferson's trust, that happens sometimes, but especially for somebody serving for both of the terms. So he served the entire eight years and was able to retain Jefferson's trust and retain this this key place and have such an impact on this administration and on a presidency that, you know, even nowadays is looked back on as being an impactful one on American history. I think I agree with you that he has earned that seat at the table. I think it's too with he's somebody it's really unique that he was locked in with this one president, he wasn't somebody who served through a lot of different pre- uh, presidents. Uh, you see the cabinet members who they were in Republican and Democrat, and you know they're always there. And that's kind of a. Per- I think that's a different kind of person. I think somebody who was really connected to this one president served that one president had a lot of impact and then moved on. There's something to say for that. I think that that unique kind of take on it makes him special. Absolutely. Although, you know, it would have been interesting if, you know, Madison's nomination of him to return as secretary of war, if that would have gone through, you know, what would that have looked like for him? Because it really seemed like so much of his tenure, it was really, that relationship with Jefferson and that trust. And I just, I don't, even though it seemed like when they were cabinet members, him and Madison got along well, I don't know that that would have translated. I don't know that they would have had the same relationship. And so it almost seems better for his legacy that he didn't get another shot as secretary of war because he was there at the right time with the right president he had all these accomplishments for better or worse and he moved on and he went on to other things again not you know for better or worse he had his successes he had his setbacks but that time and that presidency that just seemed to be the place for henry dearborn to make an impact And there's something to say for somebody who knows that they've done what they're going to do and to not try and stretch it out and maybe have really hurt the Madison administration and his own career, both by not just not gelling with him or, you know, being in your stuck in your Jefferson ways and not being able to transition. We don't know that, but you kind of get the gist that maybe Dearborn knew it. Either he was just done, I'm done, or he knew that I did my thing and this was my thing and I don't want to press my luck. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, if that was kind of what was going through his mind, we see that play out. And, and for our listeners, we're going to see that play out in some future episodes of the special series because we do have some members of the Jefferson administration who continue on into the Madison administration. And some of these work out well, you know, case in point, Albert Gallatin was a close advisor to president Madison as he was for Jefferson. But then you see others like Robert Smith that 
it completely did not work. And so it could have been that Dearborn would have ended up in that place and, you know, that would have hurt his legacy as well as hurting that administration. So I think that that was the right call for him. And, and there is, to your point, Steve, there is something to be said about that, just realizing when it's time to bow out. Wow, what a complicated and interesting guy. This was, I had such a good time. I loved coming into this blind. I would. I don't think there would have been any other way to do it. Well, Steve, I, I cannot thank you enough for your time and your insight. I, I you know, as I was as putting this together and working on the outline for it, I was like, oh, we've got so much to discuss. And so likewise, uh, this has been a great conversation as always, you know, it's always great to be able to talk with you and in this format to be able to share it with the listeners. And so thank you so much. If you ever need somebody again, I'd love to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we'll see you know, we may not have any Lewis and Clark connections, but there are definitely some fascinating figures ahead. So, and for our listeners, please be sure to check out the history of the papacy as well as beyond the big screen. I'll be sharing information about both of those podcasts on the social media for the for presidencies around the release of this episode. And I'll also have links in the sources used for this episode. So please check those out. And with that said, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.